We started the day with a patient's voice. Um, and actually, maybe the beginning and end of the conversation we were all just having is that without a shadow of a doubt, everyone in this room will be a patient. Um, and perhaps that ought to inform our behaviour. Our next, um, I'm not going to call her a speaker, our next performer, um, Bobby Baker, has been a patient on many fronts. And as well as that, uh, is an artist and performer and is now going to, I think, entertain and unsettle you. Um, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Baker. White coat. Yeah, I'm the only person in the room with a white coat. I wear a white coat whenever I'm doing a performance, but uh, in this context, it's really, it's just perfect. I've got one you haven't. I know, we're not allowed to wear them anymore. Um, Aren't you? No, we're not allowed to wear them because of infection, but it reminds me, when I was a medical student, we had short white coats at UCL, and all the kind of proper medical students from Bart's had long white coats. And they, um, what did they I remember one of them saying to me, he said, yeah, we always look at you guys and think you should be selling ice cream. <laughs> and that, yeah, well, that summed up Bart's, really. Um, what is the patient's voice? Oh, well, I'm really interested. It's been an amazing day. Um, and uh, I'm interested to hear many voices, obviously. I am, I don't use it officially. I would say I'd call myself an expert by experience. Although I notice sometimes the Durham piece that's written that's got great poetry, they use inverted commas for expert by experience. Why, do, why does one do that? We do in my company. I'm actually the artistic director of an arts council funding, funded company. And so we write, we write a lot about what we do in a very considered way. And so whether I describe myself as an expert by experience of, of what part of the health service, I am of many. Um, so I have really got my money's worth out of the NHS. <laughs> I've always been rather risk prone. So I started having, sort of going to A&E for accident repair quite early. And um, I got an arrow in my eye when I was nine <laughs> and had to be rushed to hospital to save my sight. So I'm kind of... You have to tell us how that happened. You can't... I was, we were having a fight with the boy next door. And we've been told not to have bows and arrows anymore. Uh, and he made one, Robert Woolley, out of wood, uh, having been banned. And so we were throwing uh, mud things with sharp stones in. Um, but we no, we weren't because we... Yeah, we were, actually. So <laughs> he shot an arrow in my eye at point-blank range. Um, and my dad, who was there, my mum was out... My dad got really uh, a bit annoyed and tied a white hanky around my eye. Robert Woolley shot an arrow in Bobby's eye. And, um, and then, anyway, luckily, I was rushed to hospital in London town because we lived in the suburbs the next morning and uh, it was stitched up and my sight was saved. So it was quite dramatic. But anyway, it went on. I think uh, uh, for various reasons I won't go into now, I slightly... Uh, I, I'd, I've always had rather high expectation of what I could cope with in life, and I, I kind of cracked up. There's an exhibition upstairs which tells a brief version of the story. I became part of the mental health system. You don't call it the psychiatric system, you call it the mental health system. When um, was that? What year was that? Um, I don't know, it's sort of 97, I mm. would say. Mm. Um, I'd been crying a lot the year before. Mm. 
Um, and so I went through that. I emerged quite a while ago, and I think I'm probably the most mentally healthy person I've ever met. <laughs> Which you have to be if you... I, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm good. But I suffered from what... And I would say suffer um, from diagnostic overshadowing. And so the fact... Because if you're... I was on psychiatric medication, which I'm not against, but in this case, I think it was misprescribed and I stayed on it for a long time and I put on five stone. I've got hereditary um, osteoarthritis, really bad osteoarthritis. I'd already been told in about 2000 I'd need knee replacement. I kind of like went really big. But then if you're a big blob in that context of having a psychiatric diagnosis, even the best of professionals mm. see you as obese. Mm. And there is a beast, a, did you say? A beast. Yeah, no, a morbidly beast. a beast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, a beast is a beast. I'll, I'll, I'll never hear the end of them say it that, will I? He said a beast. But they do, don't they? <laughs> well, they kind of mean that, really. Yes. <laughs> but the thing is that um, I was clearly... I, we, essentially, what was wrong with our lives, we, we're both my ex-husband and I, he's a photographer, photographer we weren't earning enough money and uh, so we both worked too hard and it affected my health my s mental health but um, also I carried on touring because I carried on working all the way through being part of the Gosh. mental health uh, I was touring extensively and nobody really knew because I'm quite a performer even though I didn't not I didn't hide it people hadn't ever realized how ill I was so I, during that 11 years I had 43 admissions which my friends from mental health system just fall about laughing and say, how did you do that? How did you get in and out? Because <laughs> it's quite, it's quite time-consuming. And uh, <laughs> just getting assessed. And there's a couple of really good uh, residential crisis houses near where I live, which were good. So I'd go in for a bit of respite. Well, it wasn't respite, but fall apart and then go back to my life. And carry on sometimes going home every day to cook for the kids and whatever. <laughs> Um, I was sort of, um, yeah, took on a bit too much in life, and, um, but carried on performing, and my only way of earning money was international touring, really. So, but I got iller and iller. I was overweight, and I kept on saying to my very good GP, uh, you know, I, I felt ill, I felt ill, I felt ill. And he said, well, you've got a lot on. <gasps> it's just kind of like a mantra, you know, you've got a lot on. And um, I would say, well, I feel ill. My eyes swole up. I felt iller and iller. And it was finally picked up through somebody else making me make a fuss that I had uh, breast cancer. The, the, it's called diagnostic overshadowing. I'm sure there's people... Is who... that what you mean by it? So the one thing was preventing... Yeah, this... I think there's quite a lot of research coming out and now about the issue that if you've got various diagnoses which carry, a, a, say, a stigma or an expectation of what you are... So um, they, you know, and people were really rather apologetic. But what was interesting, because I had, you know, I had a mastectomy and I had chemotherapy and had radiotherapy, during which I worked. And, I, you know, you're quite glamorous if you're an artist. They go, oh, you are amazing. You've had another idea. And I think, I'm only having another idea for a show because it's the only way I can get the next bit of funding. Um, but even though I met the best people as part of the system and the best mental health professionals, not all of them, but certainly enough good ones, uh, they would see me during chemotherapy with no hair, so you can't exactly miss the fact somebody's having treatment and say, you look really tired, you've got a lot on. Are you, <laughs> are 
they say, well, and, you know, I cry when I feel ill. And they'd say, oh, very, you know, how are you feeling? I'd say, well, I feel pretty shit because of the chemotherapy. But it was, it's fascinating, those stories of diagnosis. Anyway, fortunately, I, uh, I did, I have, you know, recovered. I had fantastic treatment at UCH. I have a great, uh, I mean, gratitude to the various people who saved my life, but oncology rates very high. Of course. And um, <laughs> plastic surgeons who I was, I've had a long, I've had 10 operations now in the last 10 years. Uh, a lot of it repairing, but then I finally got my first, bless you, my first... First knee replacement. I can't remember which the first one in 2009. Because um, I got very, very lame. And I tell you, the worst of it all was how much pain. Because it was like bone on bone. And my legs were never the same length for 10 years. Because they were so, you know, they just, you, you hob. And now I've got two knee replacements. And I, I am so grateful for everything. So that's a lot of things to happen medically yeah. to someone. Um, and I'm grateful, but I also feel that the voice of people like me and the voice of all the... Oh, there was a wonderful discussion earlier about uh, interdisciplinary and multidisciplinarity, and I feel the voices and the collaborative nature of the all the health professionals is the one that needs to be said again and again. And only yesterday you were both... You got both an art exhibition and this... Two events, a medical event and an arts event, happening at the same time. Oh, well, um, I did a commission for... I don't know if anybody else has heard of Art Party Scarborough. If you're a Twitter follower, um, it's Art Party 13. And uh, it's an amazing artist called Bob and Roberta Smith. Um, Organised earlier this year a campaign about the arts education being a, a, um, a central part of the curric curriculum until the age of... 16. You know, there's been quite a lot of debate about it being mm. not. Cut, yeah. And it has already had an impact. So there's a great campaign going on. Which has in, and, and so the, he's, his idea was to have a party conference in Scarborough. So it's this weekend. Okay. And I got invited to do a commission. So this morning, um, one of my colleagues and I delivered 100 packed breakfasts to a group of artists who are going in a coach up to Scarborough. But it's the most incredible, it's a sort of whole debate about what art has to offer for our society. And um, So what does it have to offer us as health professionals? I, you have to say, I'm not the expert of that. <laughs> I think it, I think, you know, there's some great things that have come out already. It's the opportunity to reflect people. I get asked to give talks quite a lot to psychiatrists, which I'm, and other people, but I'm really... It's about hearing stories and talking, but also making work. Um, I can't... I think so many people are saying it in so many interesting and better ways than I can. Um, I think it has uh, the same value as our spiritual lives would have if we were people were more engaged with spiritual reflection, you know, that it... The um, big galleries, it's interesting how much money, they, they're like cathedrals, aren't they? Or wadges of money put in them, and people go there so much, you know, uh, because it's an opportunity to reflect on things. But I'm really, I like culture, I like television, I like crime drama, um, I like anything that is 
I just kind of like gobbling it up. And I don't know about all of you, but we all absorb it. And I think we live in an age of, you know, digital age and media age where we need images. We're so sophisticated without knowing about it on what we see and do. So... And I'm going to go completely, before you start your performance, I'm going to go completely out on a limb, but I've had a glass of wine. Is, and this is something that Joe Shapcott and I have talked about, and it's going to come up, I think, hopefully next year in Medicine Unbox Frontiers next November. Is men and women, and it kind of gets um, distilled in the nurse-doctor conversation, are, are we the same in our receptiveness to this? What is, what is, what is the the role of the female artist? Is there a particular role or is that... Well, a... I mean, I, I will say, was it Raymond Tallis yeah. was talking earlier about evolution, which I just adored that, that <laughs> panel, you know, that thing. But he did say in that slide, uh, you know, about um, desire to keep your genes going, that, that women mm. could be artists too. And he thought, well, actually, women, I think if you looked at evolutionary psychology that I've read quite a lot, you'd say that women choose the, the genes, you know, that actually it's women's voices um, are really rather, I hope without being boring. I could clear, no, no, no. I could clear the room as a feminist. The doors are locked. <laughs> I, wo I won't, I won't. I put it in my work. I put all my ideas... That's why I'm an artist, because I'm rather an idealist, and I'm quite a passionate person, and uh, I can be really boring. So women's voices? Well, just like everybody's diversity. I mean, diversity, diversity. You know, I count as a disabled person. I had a big commission as part of the Cultural Olympiad yeah. as a disabled... What's it? Disabled artist-led, and it was wonderful. I've met the best people, but I think it's hearing... You know, we are not representative in our culture of uh, enough we are in in many ways mm. and that actually that's how we experience each other so yeah I think there are women artists we still are well you know things are improving they're better than when I was young why I'm called Bobby is because my brother's two years older than me and uh, I thought oh well I better be a boy then <laughs> because um, um, my real name is Lindsay but I just sort of wanted to be a boy because I just thought I'd get a better deal. <laughs> <laughs> On that cue, I'm going to leave you the stage. Is that all right? Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Bobby Baker. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Um, I'm going to start again by very briefly introducing myself which I do I don't know if you if I was still a psychiatric patient which maybe I still am in some people's eyes uh, it might be considered a little bit problematic but I do it compulsively introduce myself because mistakes have been made from time to time and people ex have expected to see a man and I'd like to make it absolutely clear yet again that I am Bobby Baker with a Y, and I am a woman. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I will also add, this is really bad, but it relates to what Sam said, that um, I was interviewed when I was 41. I just opened, it was my first big, well-known show after I'd had kids called um, Drawing the Mother's... No, I opened my kitchen to the public, kitchen show. And I was being interviewed by um, Michael Parkinson, who was on a down period of his career. It was on L <laughs> L LBC. And he introduced me and he said, what would you think, I was 41, if a middle-aged woman walked into a room 
dressed in a white coat. I'm like, I'm in my prime. You know? um, and so ever since then, I've made a bit of a feature. I did think, well, I wonder if, you know, why is my age so relevant? So ever since then, I made an issue of explaining what age and what era I am, so there's no question. So I'm currently uh, 63 years and two weeks. <laughs> so I'm not older and I'm not middle. I'm sort of in between. Anyway, I'm really thrilled to be here. And uh, uh, this extraordinary weekend, it's a great honor. And I'm, uh, the performance isn't quite long, isn't quite, <laughs> isn't quite short. No, what do I mean? <laughs> it's not too long. Um, uh, so it's called Ballistic Buns, BB. Um, and I'm going to give, I'm going to do this in the right voice for a certain sort of uh, art form. I'm going to do a brief introduction to contextualise what will be a durational performance. This is the correct term, if you're analysing this sort of work, uh, that I'm about to, to deliver, which will be 3 minutes 47 seconds. But in order to get to the 3 minutes 47 seconds, <laughs> I'm just going to set the scene a bit. And the whole point of what I'm doing, and um, I won't go in too much because then I could babble on, but I'm really interested in why, why we crack up. You know, I'm interested in thinking a lot about that, about the patient's voice from my point of view. And I'm doing research into issues of mental health and ways in which trauma and distress can be contained and resolved within one generation so that it doesn't trickle on through the centuries. Uh, I used to suffer from what is described as severe and enduring mental health problems, which I sort of think implies that you have to endure it forever. <laughs> um, and I don't know. So I thought I'd start with my grandparents, Dorothy and George, and I'll keep it snappy. They were both brought up in Newcastle, born in the 1880s, and here, uh, which I thought was good for you to look at, is my grandmother, age 15, in the lacrosse team at her school. She came from a well-to-do family in Newcastle. Um, bit embarrassing being posh, but... Well, I'm not <laughs> as posh as she was, but she was. And uh, I think her parents must have been very progressive because um, she was sent to boarding school, and I, it was unusual. And so she was sent to Rodine, uh, which I think was the best educational school in those days. Can you imagine going all the way to, from Newcastle? She absolutely loved it. Um, so that's her playing lacrosse. Uh, she's the bottom right one. So um, I think I have to do this myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's my grandfather with his siblings. I keep on trying... It's not on, is it? It is, yes. So should I do both, the radio mic and this? Just the desk one. So um, there's my grandfather with his siblings. That's him, second from the left. Tell me if, my, if I'm doing it wrong, sound-wise. Just shout. Now I'm going to compulsively, pathologically check. All right. <laughs> So he's the second from left, uh, and uh, those are all his brothers and sisters. 
Uh, they weren't so well off, but better off than their neighbours. Their father was a charismatic, I don't know if you'd use those terms, evangelical, but he was a preacher in the very poor neighbourhood called Biker in Newcastle, surrounded by extremes of poverty and distress, which I've heard family stories about. The focus of his family of origin that went back quite a long way on that side was altruism. And uh, like they used to get, that lot used to get really fed up because their furniture would be given away from the vicarage to help people who lived around them. Um, the woman they're all sitting on is his eldest sister, not their mother, Alice. She was really fed up, apparently, because uh, she used to help care for all of them. And apparently she cried every time another new baby was born. <laughs> she knew you'd have to look after it or help. And um, he had to shape up and help support the family too. There wasn't much money. Um, so he helped, he actually paid towards ultimately the education of the younger ones, including his two younger brothers. Ronnie is the second from last. He was very, very brainy. Uh, got three scholarships to go to Cambridge, went to the grammar school, and became a senior wrangler, which is a double first in maths at Cambridge. Basically means mathematical brilliance, sort of computer, and not good on eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a lot of it in my family, not me. Um, well, as I said, he had to get a job when he came back, pretty sharpish. He was also rowing blue. He had that kind of... Um, to pay for his brother's and sister's education. And the best local employer who offered the best money, and I imagine status, was a shipping and armament factory called Armstrong Whitworth, uh, which became Armstrong Vickers and ultimately Vickers. Um, basically, he did the sums to help make ships and also bigger, better guns to go on the ships. My grandmother, though, who wanted to be an artist, never finished her education. Suddenly, one summer when she was 15, her parents decided to go on a cruise. So they arrived one day in a carriage. She told me how she could hear the coaches come up the carriage of the school. Um, at her school, Rodine, and off she went to the Canaries. Lucky girl. Um, I've now realized that it's unlikely I'll ever find out why. Well, they're all stories. You make stories of your life and your family past, and history is that. But I've got a strong theory that I formed. But that from, anyway, the fact was, from that time on to the end of her life, at just after 80, my grandmother was anorexic. There was a real epidemic of young, well-to-do women of her generation. It was the second one after some medieval monks, well-known epidemic of anorexia. Uh, she never really recovered. My perception of anorexia, and I've got friends who've suffered that really terrible trouble, um, and they talk about it, is that by controlling their eating and shape, people with that feeling can help keep control of extreme, unacceptable emotions like anger, tight inside. So to a degree, it's an inability to talk about what you're feeling. Um, my mum found it very difficult. <clears throat> um, she used to talk about my I can only do my mother in an exaggerated way because she rather she had epi, epic personality disorder, my mum. If you're going to if you're going to diagnose people, she was an extraordinarily larger than life character. Uh, but she described, and I saw her with her mother trying to get her to eat. And my grandmother was naughty. And so during the war, but my mum used to say the family story was she we know she eats because we we catch her eating out of the pan. 
So she used to go in the kitchen. She used to wear a yoga, tatty old overcoat with a kitchen with an apron on underneath and then sneak into the kitchen and eat a bit like old coley out the pan. So um, it wasn't exactly uh, a, a sort of in welcoming household. Um, but there you go. In the years leading up to the First World War, he was busy designing guns and she did a bit of visiting dances, embroidery, learn to make lace, that sort of thing. So here's my grandfather. He's the, the end, oh, the one second from left, out with the whole party of his employers on a shooting party. Pretty, you know, he was earning money, he was helping the family, and obviously he loved what he did. He met through his sister when they were doing drawing classes and married in 1913. And isn't that lovely? That's the happiest picture of her ever. It's just a beautiful image. Um, so now the war, 1913. And here is another BB, Big Bertha. I don't know if many of you have come across Big Bertha. It's the name uh, given to a gun designed by the Cripps Company. The biggest gun ever, a real whopper. That's how my brother used to say, ooh, that's a whopper. Um, massive, you know, boys. I was part of their gang, you know, ooh, yeah. Massive, 16-inch howitzer. I never knew what they were talking about, but I was like trying to pretend I cared. Um, it was named after the, by the German troops. Wikipedia has taught me this. After the woman who owned the Krupps firm, Bertha. <laughs> um, I read on the internet that this was because she was large. Big Bertha. Um, but actually, I found a photograph, and she wasn't fat, but she was obviously very powerful. The gun was so big, Big Bertha, that it had to be hauled around on trains. It was really, really successful at blasting through sieges and such like. My grandfather, who I experienced as a peaceable, gentle man who hated arguments, set about working on the British equivalent. Um, being in on a ship, theirs had to be carted around on ships and they couldn't get the trains over to France. But it wasn't named after my granny, Skinny Dorothy. <laughs> Here's my grandfather on the right. I, I imagine that's Lord Armstrong um, with a, a chap, you know? But it, there's lots and lots of gun, um, pictures like this in the family album of ships and guns. Um, so that's the story of... Oh, yeah, there's a family story my brother was always telling, um, is that the gun designed by my grandfather was so explosive when they were testing it, it used to crack people's false teeth in their mouths. I don't know whether that was just invented from what guns do when you're nearby them. Um, and burst eardrums, so it was big stuff. Um, so that's the story of their lives at that point. He designed guns. He carried on working for uh, Armstrong all his life. And she never ate in front of people, ever, skin and bone, and kept it all in. So there's a, a picture, an example of picture in our family album. Boom! And that's my grandmother waving. 
She was really classy. She used to wear really classy clothes until they got as close to it. It was very, very skinny. Um, when my mum was really old, uh, she sort of opened up a bit more, as old people sometimes do. And I was just by then sort of collaborating with psychologists and really, really interested in family history and trying to trace. I'd been the designated mad person in the family. Um, and I just had a feeling. I knew my grandmother. I, I knew my mother and her brothers and sisters had been very depressed a lot of their time, their lives. And she was telling me one day, um, she slipped into the conversation knowingly, naughtily. She said, oh, that's when Daddy had his breakdown. And I went, what? What? You never told us that he had a breakdown. She said, oh, yes. Uh, he had a breakdown at the end of the First World War. And she remembered her parents. This is what they used to do. They'd all go to the South Coast. So her parents went to the South Coast and left her and her brother with their grandparents that they loved. Um, and I said, why didn't you talk about it? And she said, well, it wasn't spoken about. So that's why she was almost wanting to tell me, because it was never spoken about. Um, and let me know. And I said, and I used not to be able to read, say this without crying. Um, and I said, well, why did he have a breakdown? And she said, oh, well, of course, it was because he designed all those guns that killed all those people. And I just found that profoundly <laughs> tragic, because his own younger brother, Ronnie, was killed in the Somme in uh, 1916. And I imagine you know, my grandfather must have felt to a degree responsible. So my grandmother, really awful cook, but she made buns when people came to tea, because that's what you did. Like most people with anorexia, she liked to watch other people eat. I used to go once a week after school, and she'd watch me eat. She'd buy a bag of broken bits from the bakers. I don't know if you can still get them. It's all the broken bits from the window. And she'd pile them on a plate, and I had to eat them while she watched. I didn't mind, really, but it was all a bit weird. Um, when, she, when people came to taste, she used to make these rock buns. And she'd have a pile of buns uh, hurled. And then guests went, would get a surprise, because she'd go, kitsch, kitsch, and uh, throw them a bun. <laughs> you'd have to catch a bun, which always rock hard. Um, so I'd just like to do this short durational performance, and it is a reflection on gendered responses to anger at injustice and guilt, and the consequences of such behaviour through subsequent generations. It's a sort of reflection, and the impact of the guns and bombs on mental health, the impact of unresolved emotions and frustrated ambition on mental health. And um, so this bit that we're building up to, just a brief explanation for you, those of you not fortunate enough to be brought up in the 1950s. <laughs> and I say I went around with my brother. We used to go to a sync-up Odeon and watch uh, films. And sometimes we'd go several times. And uh, there was this film, you know, The Dam Busters? Oh, I love it. And um, about that wonderful, I can't remember his name, which I should, the less ballistic engineer who designed the bouncing bombs to burst the dams in the Ruhr Valley in Germany to ripe out their armaments factories. And we used to act it out. Well, I was always some bit part, my brother and his friends, um, the, the wonderful wonder of that. 
brave airmen, ingenuity, skill, daring, brilliance. Um, my brother and me tagging along loved it. We saw it several times. And the famous music, the fabulous music, the Dambusters theme, was really stirring and inspiring. So this version you're going to see is 3 minutes 47 seconds. Please sit it out and enjoy the buns. <laughs> this particular theme is played by the Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain. That's great. So Bouncing Bombs with Your Ballistic Buns by Bobby Baker in memory of our own Big Bertha and particularly in memory of my grandparents, Dorothy and George. So, could we start the film, please? Oh, hang on. <laughs> I, I think there might be a few to spare <laughs> for tomorrow. And uh, they're not really very hard, actually. They're nice and soft. So. So can we have the, the durational bit, please, Anthony? Thank you. Do I have to press something?
Thank you. These will be for eating tomorrow. They're very fresh. <laughs> All right, thank you very much.